Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. I mean, it's astounding that the private sector, so anyone with a business selling goods or services, is held to a certain legal standard that you can't mislead or misrepresent your goods and services to your customers. And yet in advertising for political parties at election time, it's it's free-for-all. You can Open say and lie openly. There is no standards of truth. Uh, and I think that's just unacceptable. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. We are proudly sponsored by Neon Treehouse, the best digital agency on the planet Earth. To learn more, just head to neontreehouse.com or hit the link in our show notes. Today, I'm excited to bring you my conversation with Zali Stegel OAM. Zali is an independent federal member of parliament for Warringah, which runs across Sydney's stunning northern beaches. Previously considered a Liberal Party stronghold seat, Zali succeeded Tony Abbott to gain the seat in 2019. Zali interests me for a number of reasons. First, she's a powerful female independent who advocates for issues that she believes are important to her community. These include advocating for climate action, as well as greater honesty and accountability in Parliament around promises made in election campaigns. Zali grew up in Manly and comes from a sporting family, so you won't be surprised to hear that she represented Australia in four Olympic Games in alpine skiing. Post-retirement from international sporting competition, Zali trained as a lawyer and became a successful barrister specialising in sports and family law. Following this, she entered politics as an independent in 2019 and the rest is history. This is a terrific conversation where we talk about Zali's amazing career journey, the key drivers of courage and determination that make a champion in any arena, and we have some good discussion too around some of Zali's key legislative reforms and political priorities too as well as how important it is to connect with and advocate for your community. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Zali as much as I did. So I am absolutely thrilled to be joined remotely by Zali Stegel. Welcome, Zali. Hi, Mike. It's so so good to be with you today. It's uh, a chaotic day. We've just had lockdown announced in Victoria for the sixth, umpteenth time, and Sydney's obviously experiencing a bit of lockdown too. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no need to apologise, but thank you. Um, look, you've, you've had an amazing journey and, and I think a good way to start, and there really is no other way to start when you've done so much, you know, by where you're at. Um, but I'd love if you just sort of take us a bit into your your history, your journey through um, elite level Olympic skiing to um, law and politics and just sort of paint a bit of a picture for us. Oh, geez, that's a big story. Um, look, I guess as a kid I was a very um, uh, a fairly competitive, um, you know, very athletic, did a lot of sport um, and very much uh, raised by my parents to believe in myself and to back myself. So they were, you know, I've got an older brother and for both of us my parents really encouraged us to follow our dreams. Um, I think it came, look, we've got a sporting history in the family, my Grandfather played for the Wallabies, uh, but probably cut his career short because he sort of um, got married, wanted to have kids and got a job, became a lawyer. Um, My dad was pretty good at sport but probably didn't back himself the same way. So for my brother and I, that really was how we grew up, was all about, um, you know, following our dreams and really my parents were really about making it happen. So I started ski racing when I was 
four years old, did lots of different sports. Four years um, old, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my parents put me on snow at about 20 months of age, <laughs> so very little. Um, but I was really competitive from the age of like four, started racing. But I used to do a lot of sports. Like I did windsurfing, swimming, running, judo, um, uh, you know, I I was a really competitive little grommet, I would say. Um, but at the end of the day, I've, I've always been really uh, fascinated with the process of, you know, breaking a performance down, analysing it, you know, finding those extra 1% that will make a difference to be successful. So um, ultimately stuck with skiing. Uh, when I was about 13, just, you know, I was watching the Olympics in 1988 in Calgary, um, and I just remember really watching uh, at the time a Swiss skier, Vreni Schneider, won two gold medals, and I just remember thinking, Do you know what? I want to um, I want to represent Australia at the Olympics. Um, didn't worry about how hard that might be to achieve. Just really thought that look, ultimately, someone has to make it to the top. It's a pyramid, um, and there's no rule that says it can't be you. So you've got to put everything you've got behind making that happen. So um, when I was 17, you know, my first big choice came along where I had to choose between the traditional pathway of finish school, to HSC, and all those kind of things or try and get selected for my first Olympics. Um, so I quit school. I, you know, left halfway through year 12 to go and train full-time to qualify for the Olympics. It was only one of two spots. Um, and that really set me on that journey of going to the Olympics, but then also realising I didn't just want to go to the Olympics. I wanted to go to the Olympics and be successful and win a medal. Um, so... That started that journey of uh, I finished my studies by correspondence, so I did my HSC by distance education. I did a Bachelor of Arts in Media and Communications by correspondence as well. But then obviously, you know, went to four Olympic Games, travelled the world, 13 years of winters in a of you know, two winters, so 26 winters in a row. Um, <laughs> so, it, yeah, look, it, it's a very... You know, I look back on it now. It's been over 20 years now, uh, nearly next year, 20 years since I retired at the 2002 Games. And, I mean, it feels like yesterday. You, you never, you know, you never move on completely emotionally from it. But um, it, it was an incredible um, uh, education in resilience, in, you know, goal setting, uh, hard work. You have to train incredibly hard. But, um, you know, and, and being able to, plan for a race, you know, having to perform on the day, it's it's not easy. Um, things go right and wrong. You can't control every element. So learning to let go of what you can't control, all those things ultimately were incredibly useful characteristics for my next careers, you know, from from skiing I went to the bar as a lawyer, as a barrister, and now as a politician. Sorry, long answer. <laughs> no, that was an incredible answer, and I'm sure you neglected so much stuff that you could have put in there as well. But, uh, I mean, one thing that sort of stands out for me is how enabling your parents and your family structure must have been for you to follow your dreams and just to throw everything at them. Was was that kind of a big factor to that seen you sort of succeed across many fields? Absolutely. Uh, my parents were quite incredible, you know, I think very enlightened for their time. Um 
they, like my dad is a rugby player, manly solicitor. My mum's uh, uh, worked as a pharmacist for a pharmaceutical company. She was a good swimmer in her days. She actually introduced my dad to skiing, uh, which was which was great. And they had a mountain change. So they went to spend a bit of time in the French Alps when my brother and I were very little uh, to sort of have a different experience. And then as we got involved with ski racing and my brother got involved in snowboard, um, they were really always about enabling our sport. So, you know, those stories of, um, uh, you know, my parents used to pick me up from school on a Friday, would drive down to Jindabyne, stayed in a caravan, skied all weekend, fitness training in the afternoon, schoolwork at night, drove home on a Sunday night, like, you know, you get back really late to Sydney and then Monday morning off to school and mum and dad off to work. So, and we did that religiously every weekend, whole of school holidays, you know, you just, you had to get the training in it. It does take those 10,000 hours. So, yeah, I mean, they're incredibly supportive. Um, also in terms of keeping, um, you know, um, their mind open to opportunities, that it wasn't just about follow a traditional pathway of school, university, career. Um, you know, they were very open and very supportive of me taking a slightly different journey, but um, they they knew that I would probably, that I would follow through. Part of the deal was, yes, I could quit halfway through year 12, but I had to come back and finish it. Mm. You know, there was never any question that I would finish my schooling. Um, luckily, I was a fairly good student as well. I was pretty determined to do well at school as well as sports. So I was always very focused on plan B. You know, a lot of athletes, you can focus on plan A, but you have to have plan B. You have to um, know what else you're going to do. Very few sports will carry you for the whole, your whole life. Mm. Um, so does that mean that um, when you were sort of in the competition space and, you know, being a very competitive high-level skier, you were sort of thinking in the back of your mind a little bit, oh, will I go into law or politics after this? Or do you kind of just finish in a heap of sort of injured and tired and successful and just sort of think, all right, what do I do now? <laughs> I've got everything. Um, the whole world is my oyster. Yeah, look, when you're competing, your mind is, you know, you have to be focused on the job at hand. So you're incredibly focused on that and your training. But there's a lot of downtime, you know. My competing days were before the internet, before we had Facebook and social media. So it was actually incredibly lonely and isolating because I used to spend four or five months, you know, in a row in Europe, about nine months of the year training, so always on the road, and I didn't have a big team with me. So it was really important to have something else in your life that gave you a sense of self beyond just your sporting performance. Um, because if you're only relying on sport to be, you know, your sense of accomplishment, it's great when you're winning. But mm. if you're having a bad day, it mm. gets really hard emotionally to stay positive. Mm -hmm. So I was doing a Bachelor of Arts in Media and Communications at the same time. And, look, it took me a few years. It meant I had to carry my books. I used to fax my assignments back home. And, you know, it took a lot of work, but it meant that, there were times where I could be focusing on something completely different to sport, you know, thinking about uh, communications and equality and, and the environment, you know, all sorts of other issues, social issues. So it kept me connected with, I would argue, the real world away from just the slightly surreal world of professional sport. So was that kind of the stage for you to decide to dive headfirst into politics? And sort of the caveat on that question is um, you went out as an independent. Um, could you have 
what was the rationale behind that? Is it sort of part of the individualism of um, yourself, your ideas, you're a competitor in a, in a fairly solo sport, um, you, you, you sort of very much cut your own figure uh, in the world? Um, these are just my outside perceptions, but I'm really keen to get a sense for you of what that decision-making process was like. I think there, there is a sense of that. I mean, you've got to think, I was a barrister for 10 years. Barristers are sole traders. You are on your own. Uh, you know, when you're in front of the judge in court, you've got a team behind you. You've got the solicitors and clients and everything and you've done the work. But at the end of the day, you have to perform on the day as counsel in the argument, cross-examining witnesses. So ironically, as a barrister, it was very similar to being an individual sports person where you have to get it right on the day. Um so I think it's probably not an accident that I've gone in professions where I've ultimately have been on my own, like a sole <laughs> performer. Um, I guess it may, because I'm quite comfortable with that responsibility, I don't mind having to be accountable on my own without having the support of, you know, a team. Yeah. Um, and, and politically it's the same thing. As an independent, you are on your own in that sense. You're isolated. You don't have a party to hide behind. You know, you are fully accountable and responsible for um, uh, the work you're doing. But at the same time, you're very, um, I find, very connected then to the community and very supported by the community. So that's ironically, um, it, I guess it goes full circle and it's really rewarding in that way. Um, but, yeah, look, I have done, uh, I think my sporting career and my career as a barrister prepared me incredibly well for being an independent politician and having and being able to run the, run my own show um, and be part of, a, a you know, a different setup to a party machine. Do you think, was there ever a moment where Zali Stegall sort of says, Maybe I'll just join Minter Ellison or like some some big corporate law firm or, um, you know, just join one of the bigger political parties or does that never kind of enter into the fray as a realistic option? I worked for some bigger law firms when I first started out in law. Um, but to me, look, I, I was always uh, attracted to the adversarial nature and the the, the advocacy of, of the bar and being a barrister and it is what's a appealed to me as a politician as well um, in terms of that opportunity to really speak up on issues and represent views but also really raise things from an, a you know from a, a merit point of view but also a I think a, a justice and what's right you know I think it's you know it's really important to have a bit more integrity and ethics in the debate in political space and so I guess my reservation when it came to political parties I'd never joined any political parties I'd stayed apolitical for a long time on purpose especially as a sports person um, for me my problem was the compromise ethically that you would have to make in that situation because not all uh, you know, th there's a real constraint then on your decision-making um, and there's a conflict of interest between what a party party room decides is a position on an issue or a policy versus what your constituents or the people might be wanting you to do in relation to that issue and how do you then stay true to your mandate of representing those that actually elect you. So for me, I, I, I really struggled with the conflict of interest that I think parties create uh, for politicians. Uh, ironically, the Constitution does not mention political parties. You know, the Constitution, the House of Representatives is about representing the people, the electorates. Um, the fact then that politicians that are like-minded might 
congregate together is one thing, but I find our modern version of political parties has really um, superseded the intent and it's created a conflict of interest on what true democracy should be about. Yeah, 100%. And I think what's um, really striking to me and a whole bunch of my, my friends and colleagues is the centrism in Australian politics. You know, both major parties kind of are more or less different by about 5% and then everyone just moves towards the middle, but no one's really advocating. I don't know if I'd agree on that. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Well, well, we'll follow that up. But I, I think, I guess my point is we need independent voices and I think the power of the, you know, the voices of movement, seeing some powerful independents like Fiona Patton, Helen Haynes, yourself, um, really starting to move and shape state and federal policy in interesting ways. And we're kind of almost seeing a third way sort of rise up a little bit. I mean, not not paying any disrespect to the Greens or other kind of minority parties, but the independents certainly are starting to really play that um, place of the strength of listening to understanding appreciating what the community is looking for and then you know really reflecting that as their kind of main focus yeah look I think independents are judged on um, you know or have to establish to get elected you have to establish your character you're very much there's no hiding behind anything it is you have to be your character is front and center um, and your capability to do the job. Again, because again, there's no one to hide behind. It's this is not, there's no machine or no one else is going to step in to do the job. So I think independents have to be very much a judge to a really high standard. Um, and I think I think that improves our representation in Parliament and the debate um, as a result. What I think is really interesting with this current at the moment with independence, because you know, if you go back and think of guys like Ted Mack really set the tone as well in federal parliament for North Sydney, um, is um, it's really important, I think, that we have uh, independence to represent the local voices, that there isn't that compromise of by trying to rep- be everything to all people, you know, represent a whole nation. It's very difficult to say that what matters policy-wise to people here is very different to what would matter to people down in Tasmania or up top end of Queensland. And I think your representative should represent that area. So I think that gets lost in the mix sometimes with party politics. Um, But I think it's really important that we have sensible voices um, and that it not be about personality politics, you know, that independence not be seen as mavericks and larger than life and it's about the person. I What I really like about, um, you know, Helen and, and uh, Rebecca's small party, um, Andrew Wilkie, that, and I've tried to be, is independence that are about um, uh, integrity and ethics and proper process around how you look at issues and legislation rather than larger than me, you know, character personality politics. Yeah, I think definitely it's not about, for me, big personalities. It's about um, a specific type of authenticity that comes with really clear set of values that you've taken to the electorate and sort of just thinking a bit about your own values like around innovation, inclusion and integrity and sort of wonder what they mean to you and how they resonated with you and your platform. Look, for me, for me, they're really important because I'm only one person. I very much view myself as I am one 
uh, citizen of Warringah. I am one vote. I am, you know, and I'm just put forward as a spokesperson on behalf of everyone. Um, so this isn't, uh, you know, it's, it's it's a privilege to be able to go and do that. It's not a right. And I think that's where I, I do approach it differently to party. You know, it's more about, I think it's more about personal ambition um, and, and promotion and getting into ministerial posts and things like that, whereas as an independent, you're not, you know, there's nowhere else to go. You're not trying to be promoted. So it really is about the that that the integrity um, piece and inclusion because for me it's about I have to involve the electorate. I can't do it on my own. I have to be part of um, the whole, you know, and have the support of the electorate to do to get things done. So um, inclusive um, approach to issues I think is really important. And again. If I take it that step further, at the moment our party political system is too polarising and it becomes adversarial for the sake of it, not for the greater good in terms of good out policy outcomes. It becomes that win at all costs, regardless what the topic or policy area is. You know, if the other side suggested it's got to be bad, even if it's something I would have considered, you know, like, it, and it's re- that's really negative and really counterproductive. Mm. Um, so I think inclusive decision-making is really important because, you know, we are a multicultural society. There's a wide range of views around the table. We need to find the decisions and the put in place policies that are going to help and suit the vast majority. Um, You can't govern for the minority. So does your kind of how you, you know, convert a value like that to behaviours, is it about really strong and robust community engagement and that sort of shaping what you're going to advocate for and your sort of key platform and policy changes? Absolutely. I mean, a key um, ambition for me has been to pull back the curtain on Canberra a little bit, uh, um, to under, you know let people know a bit more how they can participate in democracy. Uh, it's not just every three years at the election that you participate. You can participate in many other ways, in giving feedback to government and uh, inquiries and all sorts of ways like that. So that's been really important. Making sure people understand what's going on in Canberra, what's getting voted on, what's being debated, what the processes are so to me that's a big part of inclusion as well um but you know and, and then when you're looking at integrity integrity is in process as well as substance so things need to stack up you know if you're going to pass legislation that impacts millions of people it needs to have a proper case it proper foundation of fact, um, of research, of, you know, is it a problem that's identified? Is it good law? You know, these things are really important. And so I have a very clear process by which I look at legislation. And so to me that's really fundamental, um, but it's not widespread. I think that is a, you know, a characteristic of independence and the current crossbench. I don't think it's a widespread thing. But then again, we also need to look at integrity from a point of view of accountability of decision making and at the moment we have a huge erosion of trust in Mm. politics and in decision makers because there is no transparency or accountability around how decisions are made and who's going to benefit from them and making sure there is no corruption. 
Uh, turning from the dark side of corruption et al. to something <laughs> a bit brighter, um, I'm, I'm excited about a few things that you're advocating about loudly and speaking about. One is the power of green super to transform society. So um, I loved reading about your policy on this. I'm, um, I must disclose I'm an Australian ethical super uh, convert and um, you know big fan of um, super being a major way that we can make a difference in the world that we just don't think about every day. Um, so I wonder if you could just speak to that a little bit and what your thinking is around the, um, the how Australians are going to really be able to participate more and adopt that. Yeah, look, it's really, obviously climate is such a massive issue and it was a big part of me getting into politics and being successful that Warringah really wanted to see sensible politics, you know, fact-based. But it is a big issue. It's a global issue and national issue and it's hard, it is hard to move you know, the national conversation on it. And a lot of people get very anxious and distressed at this idea that something is so pivotal to their lives and their children's lives is beyond their control. So for me, it's really important to remind people you do have some power and you do have control. Um, so, um, and look, the UN reports have, you know, 60% of global emissions are um, uh, controllable by the individual, so consumer-driven in that sense. So people do have power and need to be educated about their decision-making. Um, and, and something as simple as your superannuation makes a huge difference uh, because money is influential. There's no doubt about it. Uh, it's why it's proving to be so difficult to implement better climate policy in Australia is because of the might and the money behind the fossil fuel industry. They're not going to let, let it go easily. Um, and so it's really important for people to grasp onto all the various ways they can make a difference. So by looking at who you bank with, who your super is with, what their policy is, you know, it's, it's a really effective way to ensure you are only with institutions that are divesting from fossil fuels and are not supporting any new fossil fuel development. It's really important. There is so much power uh, in those institutions. And uh, at the moment, the private sector, so business, uh, super, industry, are much, much more uh, uh ambitious on their emissions reduction, more attuned to the need to do have better policy than the federal government is. The federal government is still caught in its time warp um, of delay and holding off and hoping someone else is going to take care of the problem. But also I think they're, they're stuck in a, um, a self-interest loop um, of, you know, who donations are coming from and, uh, you know, looking at a sort of the political landscape. So they, they are not, um, you know, the, fed, the federal government is still really completely out of step with our international partners and our state governments and our whole private sector. So people need to do, uh, you know, take control of what they can. And so people can do things like get solar panels, get batteries. Um, that that's kind of an easy option. Maybe go with a renewables power company. Um, that's what we do at my place. Um, but what kind of changes need to happen to government energy policy to sort of really get us to where we need to be? And is that ideally net zero by twenty fifty? Is that achievable? Uh, well, it's absolutely achievable. Um, I mean, realistically, we need to do it sooner than that. But the re well, what we do need to do is put a line in the sand to make it be very clear that it cannot go past that point. Um, what we need to do in the immediate future is more than double our 2030 
ambition in terms of targets. We're, we're way out of step with our international partners, even just on our 2030 targets. Um, but, yeah, and it's really important for people to feel that this isn't so big that it's just this uh, problem that is so big that they can't control, they can't do anything about, you know, it's every little bit matters, every little bit makes a difference. But it is absolutely true that we need good we need good national policy uh, because at the moment we have every state and uh, territory government committed to net zero by 2050 and implementing those policies with, you know, very ambitious renewable energy projects and battery and all of that. But what we have at federal level is counterproductive. So for every two steps forward that state governments are doing, the federal government is taking at least one and a half to two and a half steps backwards by doing things like opening up more gas basins, um, heavily subsidising fossil fuels. So uh, in terms of uh, subsidies through various mechanisms, it's not always overt subsidy, but things like supporting more, um, more exploration uh, in all sorts of ways, Fossil fuels are still getting a huge amount of public funding from the federal government. If we could at least turn that tap off, it would make a huge difference because the market has already spoken and has made it clear it is in the market is in renewables and battery storage. Um, I mean, we've seen that with the, at the moment with the government's focus on gas that the market doesn't want to have a bar off. So its public money is going towards supporting that. And that is undoing all the good work the private sector is doing, which is incredibly frustrating. Zali, what does the next frontier look like for um, renewables? Do you, do you think much about hydrogen and sort of electric cars and that kind of stuff? Uh, look, I think electric cars is absolutely, it's here. This, that's not <laughs> that's not even a, a maybe, it's an absolute. Uh, we don't have a domestic car industry. Uh, we import all our vehicles and all major um, car manufacturers now have very ambitious uh, conversion uh, to electric vehicle policies. Um, so the reality is Australia is going to be left really stranded with poor quality vehicles. You know, we will have the lesser models from a safety feature point of view um, coming to Australia because we won't have the infrastructure. Uh, our uptake of EVs is still incredibly low and we're mm. way behind. So, And there are simple levers that could be pulled, you know, if things like um, getting rid of the car lux luxury car tax on EVs would really make a difference, uh, creating some incentives for the private sector around, um, uh, you know, uh, when you have fleets of cars for, for businesses. These are all ways in which you could have tax incentives to bring on more electric vehicles. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, the, the, the government is still just really holding back uh, in every way it can. Hydrogen, look, there is a lot of hope on hydrogen, but we have to be very clear. It's green hydrogen that will have a market, not blue hydrogen. Mm. So blue hydrogen is hydrogen made from gas, so a fossil fuel that is then essentially cleaned up by using capture, carbon capture and storage or other, other methods. Now, that will not be price competitive because to bring it down to a low emission um, status, it, it will be so much more costly versus uh, green hydrogen made from renewables and solar panels. So um, there is a distinction. I think hydrogen will play a great role, but at the moment what we're seeing, um, and this is the briefings I received, that the deflationary cost of solar panels, you know, of solar rooftop um, is incredible, the rate uh, of, of price deflation. So 
that's really hard for any other technology to compete against that. And the price of batteries is coming down. So there's a huge move to invest in batteries to be the firming, um, you know, to store for, for energy storage. Um, so I think even hydrogen, hydrogen needs to be under $2 to be competitive. And that's going to get more and more difficult as prices of other technologies come down as well. As a very competitive person, self-admitted, um, the climate change bill that you put up wasn't successful despite having a huge amount of support, which is a bit disappointing. What what kind of is your process um, going forward and what are you thinking are your ne- next moves in the space to kind of get things back on track? Well, it hasn't been defeated yet. I haven't put it up for a vote yet in the Senate. In, My in the mistake. House. Sorry. Um, so it's gone to inquiry, mm-hmm. and the the Environment and Energy Committee, which is a parliamentary committee with a majority of coalition members, have held an inquiry. We've had a huge amount of support, but the point of the inquiry for me was to be able to say loudly to my constituents, but to Australia and to the Parliament, was this is not just me saying that this is good legislation. This is you know, please listen to the whole private sector, business unions, planners, architects, you know, the Australian Medical Association, all sectors um, identified during the inquiry why this legislation addressed their concerns, it addressed their the risks that their sector faces and puts in place a plan they can work with. Um, so for me that was really important because I don't want to go to the parliament and say, I think, as an independent, that this is good legislation. I want to be able to say all these people, all these groups believe this is the best way we can tackle this challenge. So I will still be putting it up for a vote. Um, And, look, it does require the coalition or a majority. It requires uh, two people to either abstain or cross the floor. Uh, And so that obviously comes back to we have an election coming in the next six to eight months. So... At the end of the day, when you're, you know, we sort of go full circle on our conversation about as a politician, who do you represent? You know, what do the people that vote for you want you to do in Parliament? Um, Whose priorities are most important? And that's why this bill, the climate change bill, I will keep putting it forward. Uh, And I think it's really important for people to be aware of that option on the table and really hold their representatives to account. Uh, there are a lot of people that talk a big game on climate but deliver nothing. Mm. Uh, they really don't put forward any solutions. They are part of a coalition government who have not progressed. You know, they have not improved their policy since 2015 and mm. yet climate impacts and the risks have become abundantly clear that we need much better framework and policy around this. Moving from climate onto the Truth in Political Advertising Bill, so talk to me about that. That's that, that's a wordy bill. Uh, what, what is the purpose of that and how is that progressing? Well, I think the short title is Stop the Lies, um, which I don't know if the, the House will allow me because they, they get a bit funny about using the word lying, despite the fact that there are a lot of untruths said in Parliament. <laughs> um, yeah, well, look, it's part of that integrity piece that I think it's, I mean, it's astounding that, the private sector, so anyone with a business selling goods or services is held to a certain legal standard that you can't mislead or misrepresent your goods and services to your customers. And yet in advertising for political parties at election time, it's it's free-for-all. You can say and lie openly. There is no standards of truth. 
Uh, and I think that's just unacceptable when people are making ultimately the most important decision of all where the decision they make of who they vote for will impact their lives for years to come because laws will be passed um, and yet they are being lied to and there is no mechanism to protect them from that. So I think that's a, a really big gaping hole, which ironically neither side of politics has fixed because it's in their interest to keep it open. You know, it's a little bit like why we don't have a Federal Integrity Commission. Everyone's been quite happy not to have that accountability for all these years. So it is important that we close these gaps and bring improve the standard of our political debate. And one way to do that is to, you know, make it uh, illegal to lie in political advertising. And so this is also a key part, I think, of rebuilding the public trust in politicians. That So the type of thing I'm imagining is if, if a campaign pre-election promises X, Y, Z, then that's sort of put on a register. And if you do get elected on that platform, then you actually have to implement those things within a certain amount of time. Would it be something like that? Well, that's a whole different thing. I mean, promises is a different thing. Mm. Uh, the lying in political advertising is where you misrepresent um, an opponent, for example's position to right. black and white say um, you know they um, they support something that they've clearly said they don't support and yet that advertising is allowed to continue. Um, and we've had it from both sides of politics, whether it's the Medi-Scare from Labor or the death taxes from the coalition. You know, we've seen it on both sides. And the problem is these messages take hold and they do influence people, but they're complete lies. They're not founded on any basis of any facts or truth. Um, so that's the thing. When it comes to promises and, a, you know, a promise someone might make in relation to themselves, I mean, that then becomes uh, looking at, members' voting records and having scorecards. And that's where the independent movement is quite interesting because we have this group, the, the movement of voices of groups around a lot of electorates where they are looking at what promises gets made before an election and what actually gets delivered and voted on. So I think they're two slightly different things, um, but it still is all about accountability and integrity. Talk to me about what it felt like um, and this is going back a little bit sort of the, to the beginning, but defeating Tony Abbott and taking his seat out of Liberal hands for the first time since 1922, how did that feel? And was that kind of something that was just like a glorious victory and kind of part of something? I mean, it's, it's in a really important legacy, I think, but I'm just curious what your reflections on that time were in that moment. Look, I've always viewed it as I gave Warringah back to Warringah. <laughs> Actually, um, for me, that's really what it was about. There were so many people involved in that campaign. It was absolutely grassroots. A lot of people really frustrated and um, just anxious to be better represented, to have better policies and, and be more respected. So if the, you know, if the community lets you know their views, that, that has to be respected by a member of parliament. Your view doesn't trump theirs um, and I think that's where what it had come to in Moringa with with the previous members so uh, look for me it was always about it was about that it, you know it's not a um, it wasn't a personal personal thing <laughs> um, I look I hadn't felt that I was represented by Tanya but, but um, it, it was about sort of you know bringing back a bit more democracy to Warringa. Um, and 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 then, but the big thing about democracy is it only works if you have choice. 
you know, people, we, we have an incredible system of compulsory voting in Australia um, and some people, you know, rail against that, but it's an incredible privilege to have it. But then people need the opportunity to exercise it mindfully and carefully. Um, and, and if you don't have options at the ballot box, it makes it incredibly hard. And the major parties have for a long time created a system where it is very much in their favour, the, you know, the favour of the big machines of the parties to get elected. And so they've created this system that doesn't give people much choice. Mm. Um, and that's what we're seeing change and I think that's what's really exciting. Um, more and more people are seeing that, that you can create change, you can give people choice, and then it's up to people to want to take the choice. Mm. Zali, how are you coping with lockdown and how are the people of Warringah that you're in contact with going? It's tough. Look, uh, look, and I mean, you know, it's tough for everyone in Warringah. It's, um, uh, you know, for, for local businesses, really hard, really heartbreaking, and we're getting a lot of feedback and trying to engage with businesses as much as possible. Also families. The homeschooling is incredibly difficult. The uncertainty um, is really hard. There's a high level of anxiety and frustration, but there's also, you know, we are are incredibly lucky to live in an amazing part of the world. We have lots of outdoor spaces. We have the beaches. You know, uh, I do feel for people in areas where there's all, you know, more apartment blocks and much much less options to, to get out. But personally, look, I feel incredibly lucky that I'm healthy, I'm vaccinated, my husband's vaccinated, we're healthy, you know, my son's at uni in Canberra, my kids are okay with homeschool. So we're we're fine in that sense. Um, I, I do get restless. I find it hard not being able to plan ahead. The, the uncertainty of um, not knowing, you know, for how long this is for make is personally I find it challenging, uh, and I definitely have days where you know you feel quite despondent from the fact that you can't plan anything ahead. Um, I still love my sport, so I love doing um, ultra runs and long long events that you have to train a long way out and you have to plan for them. And it, so at the moment, it's really hard to think of what can I plan, what can I put in and plan for when you've really got so much uncertainty. Mm. Crazy time and crazy world to live in. Hey, Zali, thank you so much for joining me. How can people connect with you and learn more about your work? Uh, Well, the best way to get in touch is uh, my website, uh, zalistegel.com.au, or email me at zali.stegel.mp at aph.gov.au. And if you want to know more about the climate change bills, there is a website. You'll find it through mine, but also climateactnow.com.au. And that's where, you know, it's really heartening to see there is national support. Every electorate has people motivated uh, and active in pushing for better policy in the climate bills. So there's lots of ways you can make a difference. That's a wonderful message to end on. Thank you for being with me. And hang on for one second. We'll have a quick debrief. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word of mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com.